0: This week, uh, our uh, youngest son's in third grade, and at his school they give these awards. Um, uh, I think maybe once a month or so, once a quarter. They're called 212. Uh, 212 is the boiling temperature, or the temperature of water that boils, and um, and so uh, that's kind of their theme at their school. And so he got the 212 award. We were both uh, delighted and uh, surprised uh, at the same time. <laughs> You know, many uh, many uh, kids, even in high school, man, you're trying to figure out what am I going to do in life. Pretty much in the third grade, we've already settled it. It will be some sector of the entertainment industry uh, that he'll be in, uh, which is a blessing and a curse, as you can imagine. Uh, he is a very uh, lively, uh, sophisticated, humorous type guy. So, uh, so we were thrilled. But for him, it was a big deal because he didn't know it was coming. Uh, the award, and uh, they announce it per grade, and so they will say, you know, uh, second grade, Johnny Smith, and it's announced uh, over the intercom at the entire school, and uh, third grade, uh, Wesley McCoy, and, you know, and then they threw a little cold water in his face, woke him back up, that's kind of cool, uh, and, and so it just thrilled, you know, and the class applauds, and then they put his picture on the... Uh, uh, you know the Hall of Fame. They got a uh, pictures down the hall. I asked, "Was there any cash prizes involved?" I get a, I get a cut of it. You know, I'm part of this whole 212 thing. You know, no cash. Uh, any uh, gift certificates? I'm, I take a five dollar gift certificate anywhere. No, no, no cash. But it was a big deal because even as kids, we want to be important. We want to be important, especially to other people around us. We, you know, you hear kids play. We just had some boys over to the house and they're playing and and there's always this, this quest for the fastest or the highest or the strongest, you know. And you hear kids say, you know, well, my dad can beat up your dad, although I've never heard my kids say that. I'm <laughs> trying to figure it out. You know, my dad is smarter than yours. Nope, they never said that. <clears throat> Uh, maybe something like my dad can waffle down like a peanut butter, a uh, whole thing of peanut butter crackers and, you know, a certain amount of time or something like that. But they want it. There's this this quest of like wanting to be important. And as we grow older, it doesn't change once we get to a certain grade level and we have, you know, interest in the other gender and we want to prove ourselves, you know, we. Want to be an athlete or we want to be a good musician or we want a letter on our jacket and then we want a car and we want a better car and then we become adults and you know, we want to, we want to have a the job that we're proud of and a home and all those things. And it's really, if you b- just boil it all down, it's a quest to have some semblance, some sense that we matter, that, that we're, it, we're important. This goes back in history from the very beginning. You remember, in Genesis chapter 11, there were those that wanted to build a tower. And this was, we now, now, is the Tower of Babel. But they did it because of the motivation to want to be important to have a name for themselves. Genesis chapter 11 and verse 3. But you see in this construction process something that it would seem maybe simple, Something on the surface, but when you dig down deep, you'll notice their effort. Watch. Genesis 11 verse 3. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. That was an unusual way to make bricks. I'll explain why. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. That's also unusual the way they used to build these structures. I'll come back to that. Verse 4. Then they said, here's their motivation. Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Why? So that we can make a name for ourselves amongst other peoples. So that we can say where we are important. Now watch. Let's go back to these little details. When they made... Bricks in that day. They basically got the clay, they molded it in the shape of a rectangle as we would know now a cube, and then they just let it sit out in the sun. Set, and, and the sun would just kind of warm it up and harden it. No, they said, we want to put extra effort into this because this is going to be a strong tower. We don't want it to fall down. We want it to be strong. And normally they would use mortar, but no, not this time. They wanted to use tar because it was strong. In other words, they put a lot of effort into making sure that their reputation was of great importance. And I would propose to us this morning that so do we. This is something we don't take lightly. "Ah, If I'm important, fine. If I'm not important, fine. No. It's something that matters to us. We want to be important to other people. We do it in subtle ways at times. We name drop. Hey, so I was at lunch with so-and-so, and and their so-and-so must be important, or else we wouldn't have brought up their name. You know how it goes. Or we'll tell something about something that we did, and we'll just edge ourselves. We don't want to come right out and be braggadocious, but, you know, we'll just edge ourselves slightly more into the... Limelight, the spotlight. We'll make ourselves just that hero of the story. You know what I'm talking about. Just to so th- because we we're we're saying I I want to have some effort. I want to bake the bricks a little bit and put a little more effort into this to make sure that I feel important. Some people they 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 have a sense of melancholy. There's always something going because they want an arm around them to say I hear what you're saying. I'm there. But it's an effort, really. It's a it's a brick-baking effort to say, I want you to notice me. I want you to be mindful of me, and there's nothing wrong with that because I believe that all of us need to have some sense of importance. So when I see this, I'm like, oh, I see it all the time. My wife and I love to go to Selby Gardens, and I was just kind of chuckling the other day. You know, We'll find a bench while the boys are kind of playing around, and, and every bench has a name on it, a plaque with a name on it. Somebody gives a hundred bucks to buy a bench, there's Mary Arthurich, you know, that's her bench. And every bench I was starting to notice, I'm like, hey, there's the trees that you can't pronounce, you know, the little signs they have there. That's like uh there's twenty seven letters in each word, and I'm like it looks like an oak tree to me. I, I can handle the three letter and but in whatever. But then there's Mary. There's Mary on the bench, and there's Bob on the bench, and everywhere you go is a bench, there's some bricks there, got a name in them, and you give four ninety five and you get your name on the bench. Br- well, we want our name to be out there. We want a name for ourselves. And so when you look at this, you think, well, that's that that makes sense because I can recognize that. We're in this collection called Quest. This certainly is a quest of ours. And what we're finding out, that these quests are nestled within questions that we find in the Scriptures. And I believe that some of these, these quests that we're on, God would say to us, could I calibrate, could I recalibrate the quest that you're on? Because all of us, without a doubt, without an exception, all of us put a lot of effort at times in, in baking bricks and, and tar instead of mortar and putting effort into questing things that God would say, hey, that's not entirely bad, but could I just alter it a few degrees? Today, the quest for importance. I believe that It is an important quest, but here's the challenge. There are some times that we have to realize that our quest for importance doesn't really, uh, isn't worth it because it's not going to be long-lasting. I'll never forget when I was in the sixth grade. We uh, I lived in Virginia, and we always took a, uh, the sixth grade always took an annual field trip to Washington, D.C., So we took this field trip when I was in sixth grade, and we uh, were heading to to D.C. It was just uh, three or four hours away, and on the way, we stopped at a restaurant. Beside the restaurant, there was a construction site. Now, as you know, up north, where they build a little differently than they do here, they build down into the ground. We can't do it here in Florida, obviously, but up there, they build down. And so when you have like a – this was an industrial site – there, they had built several stories down into the ground to lay a foundation. However, they hadn't finished. It was still in raw format. And across this this canyon, which was probably 30 to 50 feet deep or so, there was a steel I-beam stretched across this, this big gaping hole in the ground. Of course, the boys, sixth grade boys, came out, and uh, we began to dare each other, and then double dog, dog dare. And then, you know, if we were alive, if we were today, we'd like Google infinity dare or something like that. Who would go out on this I beam? Well, I had this sense in sixth grade that, man, I would do anything. I'd bake my bricks instead of let the sun dry them. I'd use tar instead of more. I wanted to put extra effort in To be important because at the sixth grade things begin to change and the other gender, you know, becomes a little bit all those girls that had cooties don't have them anymore. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, there were girls around. I was the first to raise my hand. I'll go because I want to be important. So I straddle that I beam my mom is turning whiter as I tell this story. She's hearing it for the first time. I straddled that I-beam, and I scooched my way out over this canyon, which could have easily killed me, and I scooched myself out, oh, about 25 feet, and then it hit me. What I was doing, number one, and number two, how stupid I was at that moment. I froze like a popsicle. I couldn't move. I freaked. I got out and I'm like, I'm holding on to that I beam. I can feel myself trembling. I'm looking down like ha ah, I why did I take it? I don't even like girls that much right now. And they had to call an adult to come out to the thing. Put his arm around my chest and scoop back. My importance was crumbled. The Tower of Babel came crumbling down. The rest of sixth grade was agonizing. (laughs) Psalm 49, verse 10. For all can see that wise men and the foolish and the senseless... Alike perish and leave their wealth to others, their tombs will remain their houses forever. Their dwellings for endless generations and their well-baked bricks, though they had named land after themselves. It's all gone. So I was thinking about this verse, and I was thinking as I was sitting at my desk, I wonder how many people who are still living who are with me in the sixth grade remember that event, and I would venture to say, no one except me. Oh, it was so big at the time. It was so important, and it's gone. Often the things that we quest for are so uh, short. In nature, but we think they're so long and so big. Where, by the way, is a picture of the Tower of Babel today? It's gone. It's crumbled. It's over. There are times in our quest that we want people, certain people, to think that we're important our bosses, our neighbors, the Joneses— whoever the Joneses are—we always think of the Joneses, but whoever they are, people we work with, the guys at work, the gals at work, and all that—and it can alter the things that we look for and the things that we pursue in this lifetime. I just heard of a story that on um, just a couple of weeks ago on uh, Valentine's Day, there was a guy in prison in uh, Arizona. He escaped he literally crawled under a long uh, way under razor wire scaled two walls to get out of prison because his girlfriend wanted to spend some time with him in a bar 10 miles away he became uh, he he uh, was captured within hours but he, he he lost sight of who he should who should have been important she became more important than the guards or his uh, sentence and all those things. It reminds me of what Christ said in John five forty four. He says, how can you believe except you accept praise from one another yet make no effort, make no brick baking, no effort to obtain praise that comes from the only God, you know. I think the thing is that when you break it down, you think, well, here's the reason that we seek importance from other people, that we bake the bricks instead of just letting them go. We put the great effort in is because if I were to tell you today that you're important to God, you would say, wow, that's good to know. But the tough thing that that it's sometimes hard to believe because we know ourselves. By faith, we believe it. But come on, there are days where you look in the mirror like, really? Could God love this? All of us have those moments. In fact, David, one of the the greatest kings in the nation of Israel who had a heart after God, wrote about this and he presents to us the question of the day. In this question of the day, what we hear in David's voice is some level of doubt, whatever level that might be. See when he writes Psalm 8, he's marveling. He's just like, "Wow, the creation is incredible, God! It's so vast. It's so particular. It's so well uh, maneuvered. It's amazing." Psalm 8. He says, Psalm 8, verse three: "When I consider your heavens, the galaxy, the Milky Way, the stars, the work just of your fingers. Think about that. The whole creation, just the work of his fingers." The moon, the stars, which God, you have set in place. And by the way, Isaiah reminds us that each of them have a particular name. David knew all these things. When I consider that, verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him? I find this hard to believe, David is saying. And the son of man that you care for him. I think the word that he uses there is so perfect that God... Is mindful of us. That in other words, his, his mind is full of us. Mindful of us. Really, of me? Dude, there's seven billion people on this rock. And you're mindful, God, your, your mind is full of me, David is saying. How can that be? See, what he's saying is that I'm important to you, God. I'm gonna need a little more. I need some tangibility. I need some touchability. This is not enough just to be a concept. I can't, I can't stop at that. You see, when Christ came, He got the tangibility. He came to earth and you remember when He was baptized, there was a voice that spoke from heaven. This voice had some very particular words that were important. And then later in His life, Christ called three of his disciples, James, John, and Peter. He said, hey, I want you to come up to a mountain. and had the same experience. We find this experience in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. While Christ was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son. I'm proud of him. I, I, this. I want you to take a look at him. He gets 212. He gets his name in the Hall of Fame. The father is saying, this is my son. I'm proud of him. He's important. Whom I love. No, no hesitation. Some dads have a, tr- a problem with saying, I love my son. Uh, somehow they, they were raised in a way that love didn't happen. I, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. He's important. Listen to Him. You see, when I hear these words, I'm like, ah, man, Christ had one up on us. See, I don't know about you, but I haven't heard a booming voice from heaven. Steve. You may not hear Steve. It'd probably be your name. Fill in the blank. Steve, you're my son. You're my child. I love you. You're worth something. You're worth listening to. I haven't heard that. I have to hear it from somewhere else. There are many people probably sitting in this room that never heard that from their father. We're raising, we're in a culture of missing dads now. It's so critical. We take, we take the crumbling of the family unit in this country lightly. It's not. The ramifications, the consequences, the implications of it are deep. Because when I'm around those whose father never said, I'm proud of you, I love you, you're doing a good job, you're important. You know what happens? We start to look for it somewhere else. We start to say, man, I'm not getting anything here. And so I need something tangible, something touchable. I've got to prove myself to the world. We pose as men. We've tried to find our self. We try to find worth and so many crazy, senseless things that will never last, as we're told in Psalm 49. I did. A, I was at a funeral yesterday. I led a funeral. And uh, tragic. A young man lost his life. Uh, and uh, I uh, was standing in the back room and getting my thoughts together. I was standing there alone. And I had met with his wife, a young widow now, who has a two-year-old. And I was standing there in the back room by myself, and she came back, and uh, she said, Will you pray with me? I said, Sure. We, we prayed together. Numb, stunned. After we prayed, I looked her right in the eye and said, i got to say something to you. I'm proud of you. I was shocked at what she said. She came back. In a half a second, I mean just that quick, I said, I'm proud of you. She said, why? Why are you proud of me? It took me back. You see, it's not enough to say, hey, I'm proud of you like some cliche. It's not enough for me to tell my son I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you, son, because this is what I see in your life. I'm proud of you because this is happening in your life. She said, why are you proud of me? I said, I'm proud of you because you're not trying to do this alone. I'm proud of you because you're standing up for your two-year-old boy. I'm proud of you for that. And you could see it in her eyes. It meant something. She needed to hear somebody say it. She needed someone to take her hand and say, You're important. You can do this. You're not alone. You matter. It's not over. And all of us do. So our quest in this lifetime, particularly for those who have... Embrace Christ for those of us that say, okay, I matter to God. I'm important. The quest is not just to continue, to continue, to continue to find affirmation of that, but to help each other out. The quest may not be what you think this morning. Your endless quest in life is not just to keep affirming yourself as being important. I hope by faith. That you can say, okay, God says I'm important, but you're going to need help, and so am I. So do I. You see, if you were the only person on the planet and you happen to find a Bible and it says, wow, God loves me. His love for me is deep as the ocean. I propose to you that you would need something more. You see, the scripture tells us that our responsibility as followers of Christ, as those who have embraced Christ, is to make the things that are hard to understand more tangible, more touchable. In other words, we're told in the, in the first letter of John, like, hey, man, if you're saying that you love God, but you don't love other people, there's a breakdown. Something's wrong. We're imitators of God. You remember Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1? We talk about that a lot. We're imitators of God, therefore, because Christ gave himself up, and we've got to give ourselves up. He sacrificed. He did real love. And so now it's not enough for me to say, I love you. I have to show you. So when people in this world are in a quest for importance, we have to help them. Now, I want you to reap deep in your pocket, pull out your thinking cap, and put it on for a minute, because I'm going to go deep for a second. I I propose to you, and I do this from time to time, that many of us are tired of shallow Christianity without having to be charged to think. Many of us are tired of the 101, come on, y'all, Christianity. Now, I'm open for everyone, of course, and, and you have to break things down, and I believe that's important. But I challenge you to think for a second. I want I, uh, I want you to put on your thinking cap because otherwise we'll leave this room and think, okay, I got it. My quest is to know that God, uh, I'm important in God's sight. It's important to know, but it goes past that because we're not uh, put on this planet just to affirm our importance in God's sight. God says, hey, I got that. That's an elementary basic truth. Let's move on, shall we? It's like the song said today, we're gonna. We need to be led by the hand by others. So here we go. In in one of the books that I have um, referred to many times, and it's in the back of your uh, uh, on the back of your info sheet. It's a wonderful book. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's called "The Safest Place on Earth," written by a man named Larry Crab. And Larry Crab reminds us of a a truth that we cannot get away from. Here's what happens for those of you that are new to the faith. We as Christians do not just believe that historically Christ died, agree with that, that historically he was buried, that his body was buried, got that, and that his body, and then he came back in bodily form from back from the death. We we would say that we believe all those things, we agree with all those things, but that's not it. Sometimes in religion we say, well, if you just believe these things and agree with these things, then that means that's who you are. I grew up that way thinking, no, no fault of my parents, but I thought, well, I agree with it. In other words, I, don't, I agree with these things as opposed to these things of another religion. Therefore, I'm a Christian. But see, a true Christian is, is when Christ tells us is that when there has been uh, an igniting inside of us, Christ calls it the second birth. Unfortunately, in our culture, when we say born again, we've a uh, culture around us has kind of put that in a nutshell and we think it's some right-wing movement or something or other and and then we can just toss that one out because it's a reality and that's what the world does. It takes great truths and says, "Well, let's just, you know, put them in a in a capsule and then we can just compartmentalize that." Born again has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with you're on the right or left side of the aisle. It's a spiritual supernatural reality because when we come to Christ, we say, here I am. I have nothing to offer. I'm coming to you as a sinner in need of a Savior. And not only do I need a forgiveness of which the cross offers Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That's only part of it. God, I need to be forgiven. I cannot be good enough to reach to heaven, to come before God and say, I've done it, nothing, no one on that earth has this capacity to do. So we come to Christ, empty hand, and say, I, I offer you nothing, God, except myself. Here I am, I can give you nothing, and I accept, God, your offering for me and find forgiveness. But see, that's only half the story. Now here's the rest of the story. What was that guy's name? Uh, Paul Harvey, here's the rest of the... Here's the gospel according to Paul Harvey. See, the gospel of... uh, uh, The entire gospel didn't stop there on a cross. Paul says, if Christ is not risen, you're still in your sins. Christ came back from the dead. So he had the capacity to present himself to the Father and then empower us from the inside out. Not Miraculously, that the Spirit of God miraculously, mind-blowingly comes inside of us and ignites us. And then we are a child of God at that point. Not because we agreed to certain precepts. God, I'm asking that you take my life, forgive me. And I'm asking you to come inside and, and give me a second birth. It's still not the end. Here's where we put our thinking caps on. Once we have gotten to that point in our lives, now God says, okay, time to work. Time to go. This is what bothers me when the gospel is presented, like you've got to get your act together before you come. Phooey. <laughs> Almost said a bad word there. Like Frankfurter. <laughs> Phooey, God said, come to me as you are. Let me work inside of you to make you, to mold you. You can't do that either. You can't, bec- you can't save yourself from your sins and you can't become more and more like Christ without the power of the Spirit of God. So this is where God says, okay, let's start working. Once we come to Christ, there is this rude awakening of like, ah, dang it, I'm not perfect. I thought this was going to be easy. I thought all of a sudden everything was going to be all right. And all of a sudden, we're made very aware that there is a civil war going on inside of us. The Spirit of God is trying to work and work and mold Paul calls this being in the Spirit. And yet, there is this reality that we still live in this body with habits. We call it the flesh. The Bible calls it the flesh. Larry Crabb has a beautiful picture of this, what he would call the upper room and the lower room. The upper room represents us Allowing God full influence in our lives. Where God is working, we're in rhythm with Him. The lower room is when Steve is driving. My flesh. The way I want to do it. The way I react. The way I perceive. The way I do things, right? There's this difference. So watch. When Christ was getting ready to come to the end of His life, as many of us know, he invited his disciples where? To the upper room. Upper rooms generally are where the VIPs sit. He didn't say, come one, come all, because he wanted to have a special moment with his disciples. And so he said, I want you to come up in the VIP room because before I leave, I want you to touch what it feels like to be close to me in a private setting just you and me. And I want you to know you are deeply important. You see, when I'm walking in the lower room, I don't feel important. I start looking at all my junk. I start talking. You get the self-talk like you're not worth anything. But blah, blah, blah. when you go up into the upper room and you're walking in the spirit, that's when you're sitting across the table from Christ. Watch this. Luke chapter 22. One of the times that the upper room is recorded. It's recorded in other gospel writers as well. But watch this. There are some brilliant, some brilliant and beautiful pictures in this intersection. Watch. Jesus said, look, I'm going to ask you guys to prepare a meal. Of course, their question was, where? Where are we going? And he says this, as you enter the city, a man... Carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Look for this man carrying the water and follow him to the house that he's entering. That's how you'll find the upper room. And say to the owner of the house, the teacher, Christ asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And at that point, you'll have your second sign. The owner, he will show you a large upper room, all furnished, equipped for what we need to do. Make preparations there. Now, let me point out something that you may or may not know. In this culture, when the disciples were walking through the city, looking for a man carrying water, would you not say, dude, really? Like it's like me saying, okay, where are we going to eat today? Okay, here's the deal. Go downtown and find a man driving a car and follow him. Like, really? Follow a man driving a car? Christ could say this because in this culture, men did not carry water. This man was going to stand out. It was the women, like it or not good, bad, or indifferent in that culture who carried the water. You remember the woman at the well. She came because the women carried the water. The reason that Christ could say, go into the city and see the man carrying the water because he was unusual. He stood out from the rest. He was carrying something life-giving. And he said, follow that guy because he'll get some tangibility and some direction and guidance to the upper room where you're going to feel like a VIP. And then find the owner, and then he'll show you that room. Okay, Steve, what are you getting at? Too many pictures, too many concepts. Let me tell you this. You cannot find the upper room on your own. It's others who lead us there. It's others who say, I'm carrying the water. I'm walking in the Spirit of God. I'll help you find it. I want to know my quest now is not just to keep affirming to myself that I'm important to God. My quest now is to help you find that you're important to God because so many of us don't. How many around us feel this, oh my goodness, so unimportant in this world and somehow we're expecting them to find the upper room on their own the challenge is that when you go up in the upper room here we go now I know you're nervous especially my mother is very nervous when you're looking when you're up in the upper room you think man this is great I love it up here all eleven of us. I'm glad there's nobody else. Haven't you ever been in in that scenario where you're up in a theater, you maybe those little box seats? And aren't you glad, come on, be honest, that nobody else is up there? Why? It makes you feel important. Whoa, it makes you feel important. <laughs> You got the banquet room all by yourself out and back. And nobody's there and you're glad nobody's there because you feel like a VIP. The challenge that Christ gives to us is this room is open. And we're not here in this room to close others off. The challenge is that as much as you try and as much as you would love To live in this room, walking in the Spirit of God, all the time, you can't. The bad news is tomorrow morning, you may wake up. And for whatever particular reason, you're down here. You're ugly. You're grouchy. You're spiky. You're thistly. You're hard to be with. Now, I haven't experienced that in my Christian faith yet. Of course I have. In fact, I lost count last week. Come on. That's why we need each other. But here's the challenge. Watch. When... You are responding in a lower... Or acting in a lower room way. Suddenly I can come down. And if I react in a lower room way, it's over. Two people on the lower room together is ugly times two. We, If our mind is set, oh, I know how that person is. And all of a sudden now... I'm in lower room mode, critical, looking. Ah, they've always been, I'm bringing up their history. You know, love keeps no wrong uh, records of wrong. Oh, not in this room, it ain't true. There's a lot of records of wrong down here. Oh, I remember when, dot, 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 right? Because in Romans 8, chapter, verse 5, those who live according to the lower room have their minds set. Have their minds set. There's no quest that even though you may be lower room today, there's no quest because my mind is set in this lower room. I can't see any hope for you to come upstairs. Me leading? Nope. In other words, let me say it to you this way. I'm not a water carrier in the lower room. No one's going to look at me when I'm living in the lower room. Now, there's a guy. That could take me upstairs. There's a guy that could lead me higher. By the things that he's saying. Larry Crabb. The safest place on earth. Writes this. I was hit in the stomach again this morning. With another example of how prone I am. To connect with others. From my lower room. To see only that room. That room and others. You see when I'm down here. All I can see is your lower room. I have to be up there. To say, oh no, I, I know, I know you're a bit grouchy today. I know you said that, it shouldn't have been that way. I know you've done it again and again and again and again. I know that. But see, I'm on a brick baking quest for you, not me, to elevate you. This is not about elevating myself if you're truly a follower of Christ. What happens when, when somebody snaps off a snide remark? Boy, don't you get right down in that lower room sometimes? Because here it is. Let me just give it to you. Yo mama evokes yo mama. You know what I mean? When somebody says yo mama, what do you say? Oh yeah, well yo mama. Or whatever it may be. Right? It's just... Uh-uh. It's, one, it's eye for eye down in the lower room. In fact... Proverbs 29, verse 22 says, A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. You're not elevating people. You're down there with everybody else. Proverbs 15, verse 1, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You see, if someone is wrathful, a life-giving, upper-room, soft answer says, oh, no, there's something different here. My kids play Minecraft. Anybody with a... Everybody's like, all right. I see one guy over here. We limit the number of hours. We let them play technology because, you know, it can be consuming. But there's this game called Minecraft. They play it on their jiggers. I don't know what those things are, um, whatever device they have. Both boys have it. Minecraft is a game where you're building bridges and walls and you can build a whole city and it's it's pretty nifty. And and, uh, you can play by yourself or you can play on the same level. You can play with two people. Every time they're on the same level, they fight. (laughs) So about three weeks ago, Dad threw the gauntlet down like, That's it. You can play Minecraft alone. You cannot be on the same level. You get it, right? We cannot be on the same level in the lower room because no one is elevating the other. On your upper day... I need you. On my upper day, you need me. This is all about saying, Oh, I see you're having a bad day. Instead of me hopping down on the ground floor saying, How dare you say that? I'm saying, Oh, no. Let me be a water carrier. My quest is for you, not just for me. Here's the solution. Larry Crabb, perhaps our greatest battle... And at the same time, our richest blessing has been to see the upper room in each other. Have you noticed that we value what other people value? You know, things that become popular. The iPhone. You know what? The iPhone is popular because the iPhone is popular. People like, uh, you know, I I have an iPhone. It was a gift for, for, for me, but... Uh, I, uh, I have an iPhone and, but, but I wanted an iPhone because everybody's talking about an iPhone I'm like it's a phone right it's just the way it goes you remember Furby you remember Furby my mother's yeah. I almost stabbed a Furby Furby was this little furry thing and it, you can say it it had its own language and it said A-c-a-tay. I'm like if I hear it one more time let me tell you what Steve can do to a Furby in his lower room. I'm like, I my to kill him. Ah, Furby. But the Furby became really popular. I mean, it's like blitzed the whole marketplace because it was popular. There wasn't anything special, but you had a Furby? I need a Furby. Why? I need a Furby because you got a Furby. That's the way that we are, right? In other words, we value other things when other people value them. Watch. Everybody who's a follower of Christ has the open door to the upper room. God sees you and you and you as a VIP. The challenge and the quest is for me to see what God sees in you. I can easily see the lower room stuff. That's easy. But it takes great brick-baking effort to see the upper room. Now, I'm not saying we don't deal with things in that lower room, but boy, that that can drive. You remember in Philippians, Paul wrote, "Hey, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent, praiseworthy, think about these things." You know, you could you could find that in a self help book. Honestly, go out on the beach, put your fingers together, tell them up, and then go. Oh, whatever is lovely, beautiful, clouds and butterflies and Winnie the Pooh. That's not what he's talking about. Because when you read the book of Philippians, he's talking about others. So let's just pick a name. Let me pick a name out of the blue. Zach. Let's just make him up. So you know Zach. Zach's not having a good day. He's having a lower room day. And what Paul says, whatever's true in Zach, because there's something true in him, look for it. Quest for it. Bake bricks for it. Use tar for it. Put some effort in questing what is true in that person, in Zach. Whatever is noble about Zach, whatever is right in Zach, whatever is pure with Zach, whatever is lovely in Zach, whatever is admirable in Zach, if anything, and there's something in Zach that's excellent, if there's anything in praiseworthy about Zach, then think about those things. It's easy to think about what's wrong with Zach. I'll give you a list. In fact, there's a printout this morning of everything wrong with me at the info desk. Save you some time. You understand it takes great effort. It takes great effort, especially when a person is acting with a lower room mindset. It's easy to like likable people. I'm easy to like when I'm having an upper day room. It's the lower room. Watch this. Here's how it's possible. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set. Their minds set on what the Spirit desires. 2nd Timothy 2:24. The Lord's servant, that's you and me, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, watch patiently enduring lower room behavior. I'm about to show you a film. It's quite stunning. Some of you may have heard this story, although the story somehow nestled itself in a corner of the news. This lady's name is Antoinette Tuff. Don't know if you heard her name, T U F F. She lives in Atlanta. At the beginning of the school year, 2013, a story that's becoming all too familiar was on the news. A gunman had come into a suburban school. In Atlanta. Antoinette was not supposed to work that day. She was a bookkeeper part-time, but someone didn't show up at the front desk, so they called her and said, can you come in today? As you'll see, it seems quite providential. She came in to work that day, sitting at the front desk. A 20-year-old young man came in, 500 rounds of ammunition and multiple weapons, including an ak 47 800 students at the school with staff, teachers, and whatnot. And he took the barrel and he put it right in her face. In that moment, none of us would know what we would do. All of our heart rates would elevate for sure. But she was staring in a very lower room moment in a person who was having a lower room. But see, there was a difference that day because Antoinette was a water carrier. She stood out. To say that she was in the upper room is an understatement, as you'll hear from her story. She stood out because she was in the spirit of God, a follower of Christ, one that had a higher quest in this life. This guy made all kinds of threats she began to love him. She said to him, sweetheart, she called him. I, last night, Yesterday I was sitting in my office. You can go to YouTube and get the 24-minute 911 call because he demanded that she call 911. She had the phone laying on the desk. You can hear everything. long, Sometimes long periods of silence. It's not for the light of heart. You'll hear gunfire going off because at one point, He opened up the door. The police had surrounded the school. He opened up the door and he walked out and he started firing and they started firing at them and bullets were flying all over the place. What would you do if you were her? Would you not have shut the door because he was out of your room? She didn't. You know what she said? I love you. You're going to get hurt. Come back in my room. Who says that? Water carriers say that. She said, honey. She called him honey. She's from Atlanta. Maybe everybody calls everybody honey in Atlanta. I don't know. (laughs) Honey, last year my husband, been with this man 33 years, he divorced me. I attempted suicide last year, son. I'm here to tell you That this is not all there is. I'm here to tell you that God has a different plan for you. Would you not consider, sweetheart, I love you. She kept saying it. I want you to watch this film, this interview. Stunning.
1: He had just went out there to shoot at the police and they were shooting back at him. Uh And the bullets was coming from everywhere. And I said to him, come back in here right now. Come from out there. Come back in here. Don't worry about it. Come back in here and stay with me. We're both going to be safe. And That's amazing that
0: you were encouraging him to come back into the room where you were. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people would be happy he's out of the room where you are. But you said come back into the room.
1: Yeah, because he was firing bullets with him, and they were firing him back. I knew that that could have been my story, but because of God's grace and mercy, it wasn't. Mm. And I knew that I could help somebody. somebody. God sent people, my pastor and people and friends and family in my path to help me through. And I knew at that point in time that he needed me and I was the only person there. So I just wanted to be able to allow him to know that there was some hope. And so I know today that all that I went through was actually for that one perfect day. And that was to save that young man's life and to make sure that 800 and some children and also all of our staff would be able to know that God is real. And even all of those who don't believe, they're able to see a God in action.
0: Do you still feel sorry for this man?
1: I really do. I would like to go back and visit him.
0: You would like to maintain contact with
1: him? Yeah, I would. I would like to go back and and, and contact him and just see how he's doing. I mean, not in the relationship there, because I know that it's beyond what he sees. He's a hurting hurting soul. And so if any kind of way that I can help him and, and allow him to get on the right path, We all go through something. And I believe that God gives us all a purpose in life. And I believe He has a purpose and destiny for that young man also.
0: How about that? You see, her story is clear. She said, My pastor, my family, my friends, they took me in a lower room moment and said, Come on, you're important. You're important. And you're not seeing it. You hear what she said? He couldn't see it. She said, come on. Said, my family, my friends, they led me up here. And you're so far down there right now. She said, let me, can I give you a hand? I'll tell you what, I'll come down. She disarmed that man, that, that young man, confused, feeling unimportant. One by one, he took all of his bullets and all of his guns. He put them in the corner. and and disarmed the entire thing with not one person hurt. Stunning. Only because there was a water carrier. I wonder who it is in your life that you just are glad they're not in your little sacred room. I'm up here. Whoo, thank God Zach's not in the room. That is not what we're called to. We're called to be distinguished, to be able to be followed to the upper room because people cannot find it on their own. I'm going to get real personal here today with you. I'm going to open up the McCoy home. We have two boys. Our youngest boy came to Christ about a year and a half ago. Our oldest boy is nearly 11 years old. Your parent, it's crazy to say these ages because it just goes by so quickly. And my oldest son, who has just a very tender heart, he, I have explained the gospel to him. I shared the story of Christ many times. My wife has as well. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but I'll do it for you one day. I've, I have done the gospel in Lego version before. See, here's Christ. Let's build a cross. You know, I've done the whole thing in Legos. Paul said, I become all things to all men. I've become a child. And say, let me explain it to you on your level. Each time uh, he would say, I get it. It's just not for me. You know, as a pastor's kid, you want to make sure you don't jam it down their throat. So you wait. You wait, and you keep offering that hand like, "Hey, come on! There's an upper room. There's an upper room." And you wait, and you plant seeds. You plant seeds. You plant seeds. So Friday night, like any other night, any other Friday night, I when I took my son in, he always says, "Are you climbing in the morning?" Because I do this wall climbing thing on Saturday mornings, and my response is the same. Well, I'm gonna try, because uh, that's a reality. <laughs> So Friday night, he said, hey, Dad, are you climbing in the morning? And uh, I said, well, no, not tomorrow morning. I'm not going to climb because Daddy is going to be at a funeral. And this funeral is, is uh, for a man. He's a dad. He was a dad, and he has a son just like I do. And, uh, but he was in a horrible accident this, this past week, and, and now he's not here. And I said, but here's the cool thing. He started coming to our church just a few weeks ago. And he uh, gave his life to God, to, to Christ. At the funeral, I read the last text that he wrote to his dad and said, I've turned everything over to God. And so I was just intending to plant a seed and move on as I've done many times. But my 11-year-old said, hey, Dad, I think it's time I give my heart to Christ. And I said, well, I'm a little busy right now. I'll get back to you <laughs> <laughs> So I pulled in mom and we prayed as he accepted Christ. Not the end of the story. All along, all along the way, at around the dinner table, I said, why don't you pray? No, nope, not, not have anything to do with it. So last night at the dinner table, We're coming and on the way to the table for the first time in almost 11 years. He says, hey, Dad, can I pray? Woo, it's the upper room. (laughs) Here's the point of the story. It is worth waiting for. Even when people say, I'm not interested, and they're acting uninterested, and even when they're acting ugly, We cannot meet them on the ugly level. We must find ourselves in the upper room and our quest must not be for this affirmation of our importance. God says, believe it. Now carry the water of importance so others can follow you to the upper room. It is our responsibility. We must carry this to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Oh, my goodness. We're thankful. Oh, my goodness. We're thankful, God, that you saved us, so many of us. Oh, we couldn't do it on our own. And neither, God, can we find ourselves to the upper room on our own. I would venture to say, God, that if we all of us just sat and thought of the people that when we were still being ugly and stubborn, someone took our hand and took us up the stairs to an upper room. A water carrier, God. Oh, God, may the effort that we put forth in this life, may those bricks that we bake, May the tar instead of mortar, may the deepest effort, God, not be for ourselves, but for others. Like Antoinette, may we just be in that upper room so that we can help others up. I pray, God, for this room. We get we get so consumed, God, with our own stuff. Just by inertia, we get just taken in. And life becomes about us and our importance. Today, God, we're reminded that we are to have be on a quest to find out whatever is true in others, whatever is noble in others, whatever is right in others whatever is pure in others, God, whatever is lovely in others, whatever is admirable in others, whatever is excellent in others, whatever is praiseworthy in others, for us to think on these things and see that everyone around us, those who are around us, those who are being ugly, those who are living in lower rooms are valued, they are VIPs in your eyes and if they're important to you, God, oh, let them be important to us. I pray, Father, we won't just drink our own water, but we'll carry it for others. I pray, God, for those in this room who have never found you, who are in this room probably because they've started to search. And they come to this stark and wonderful reality that as they were looking for you, God, they discover That you have been mindful of them. That your mind has been full of them. That they have been that sheep. That you were willing to, to leave all the others to go look for. They discover God. That as they are looking for you. That you've been looking for them. For quite a long time. And at this intersection God. I pray that they will discover that Christ has died to remove all sin from their lives. But equal to that, he has risen and come back from the dead. So that he has the capacity to infuse his spirit mysteriously in us to begin a wonderful work. Oh God, we are a grateful people. But I pray today that that will be actualized, not just to be a grateful people, but to be grateful water carriers in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.